If we're going to get to Mars, we're going to have to clear the maps. The dragons, cyclops, and other monsters of the mind must be killed, and the siren exposed for the fraud that she is. These are the words of Robert Zubrin, one of the most ambitious and brilliant astronautical engineers of our time. For decades now, Zubrin has been a strong advocate of sending human beings to explore the planet Mars, and he has a detailed plan of how to accomplish it. He says that technology isn't the reason why we haven't yet made the journey, but politics. In 2001, Zubrin met an eccentric young billionaire who shared his interest in a manned mission to Mars. That billionaire's name was Elon Musk, and he would go on to change space travel forever. Today, Musk talks casually about colonizing Mars within our lifetimes, and he has his own vision of how it might be done. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. We'll be breaking today's episode on Mars into two parts, with the conclusion in next week's episode. A manned expedition to explore the planet Mars will be one of the most profound events in the history of human civilization, and it has the potential to answer some of our deepest questions about life on Earth and our place in the universe. The dream of a voyage to Mars, not to mention who or what we might find there, has captivated humanity's imagination for quite some time now. Today, you were invited to share in that dream, and to witness how finally, at long last, the dream might become a reality within our lifetimes. In 1897, in Pearson's magazine, readers beheld the extraordinary account from an eyewitness in Europe of an encounter with an extraterrestrial creature. A big, grayish, rounded bulk, the size perhaps of a bear, was rising slowly and painfully out of the cylinder. As it bulged up and caught the light, it glistened like wet leather. Two large, dark-colored eyes were regarding me steadfastly. The mass that framed them, the head of the thing, was rounded and had, one might say, a face. There was a mouth under the eyes, the lipless brim of which quivered and panted and dropped saliva. The whole creature heaved and pulsated convulsively. A lank, tentacular appendage gripped the edge of the cylinder, and another swayed in the air. Those who have never seen a living Martian can scarcely imagine the strange horror of its appearance. The peculiar, V-shaped mouth with its pointed upper lip, the absence of brow ridges, the absence of a chin beneath the wedge-like lower lip, the incessant quivering of the mouth, the gorgon groups of tentacles, tumultuous breathing of the lungs in a strange atmosphere, the evident heaviness and painfulness of movement due to the greater gravitational energy of the Earth. Above all, the extraordinary intensity of the immense eyes were at once vital 
intense, inhuman, crippled, and monstrous. There was something fungoid in the oily brown skin, something in the clumsy deliberation of the tedious movements, unspeakably nasty. Even if this first encounter, this first glimpse, I was overcome with disgust and dread. Alas, though, this encounter was mere science fiction from a serialized version of a novel by H.G. Wells about an armed conflict between Martians and human beings called the War of the Worlds. Still, the notion of intelligent life on the planet Mars was entirely plausible at this time in history. Even with early 20th century telescopes, it was still difficult to make out details on the surface of Mars. In the early 1900s, American astronomer Percival Lowell squinted into the eyepiece of his massive telescope, adjusting the focus to get a clearer image in the early hours of the morning, and recorded his observations of the planet Mars. As the months pass, light and dark patches on the surface of Mars change with the seasons, just as they do on the Earth. Mars has a visible polar ice cap at the North Pole and at the South Pole, just like the Earth. So naturally, astronomers began to wonder if Mars might be a planet much like the Earth. Among the changing shades of color and blurry surface features of the planet, Lowell saw what appeared to be straight lines, canals, artificial engineering by a species that surely must have been far more advanced than any human society. Lowell speculated that a super-civilization might be fighting against a planet-wide drought and famine, that the changing colors on the surface were due to vegetation dying off. To mitigate the effects of a changing climate, massive canals, larger than any canals ever built on Earth, were being constructed to irrigate different areas of the planet's surface, transporting water from the polar ice caps. At least, this was what Lowell believed. The general public was fascinated by the idea of intelligent life on other planets, though some of Lowell's fellow astronomers were skeptical. Nevertheless, in 1906, Lowell published the book Mars and Its Canals, in the decades that followed, Mars remained a curious point of light in the night sky. It was a world that could only be glimpsed in any detail through telescopes, and only on the clearest nights here on Earth. Lowell was known to be brilliant, but also eccentric, with a very active imagination, and not everyone looking through a telescope could make out Lowell's canals. Then, in the early 1940s, something changed. A brilliant engineer named Werner von Braun began constructing advanced, state-of-the-art, liquid-fueled rockets in Nazi Germany. These rockets killed thousands in neighboring England during World War II. But von Braun knew that they could serve another purpose, to transport human beings on journeys into space. Von Braun and his fellow engineers would surrender to American forces at the end of World War II, who eventually shipped them back to the United States, covering up evidence of their Nazi past. Clearly, 
the U.S. military would want to learn everything about these new superweapons. The German engineers were housed in a military barracks near El Paso, Texas, with dusty, splintered hardwood floors. Von Braun now reported to a 26-year-old major with bad acne, who derisively called him by his first name, Werner. The German engineers were not permitted to leave without an armed escort. It felt almost as if they were in a minimum security prison. Of course, von Braun wanted to build new rockets for space travel, but his future career was uncertain. He might soon be put on trial for war crimes. In the dry, arid desert climate, the night skies were clear and cloudless, exposing a vast cosmic tapestry of stars, the cosmos above. And among them, there was a faint red point of light glowing in the darkness, the planet Mars, named after the Roman god of war. An idea crept into von Braun's head. If he could convince his captors to build bigger, better rockets, then a voyage to this distant planet might very well be possible within his own lifetime. So he wrote a book on the subject, The Mars Project. Von Braun imagined a fleet of several spacecraft, assembled piece by piece in orbit around the Earth and powered by chemical rockets. Multiple ships for redundancy would minimize the risks of technical malfunctions for crew members on the long journey through space. The expedition, with a crew of perhaps 70, would spend at least a year exploring the surface of the planet. Mars was only about half the size of the Earth, but because so much of the Earth is covered by oceans, Mars has roughly the same landmass as all the Earth's continents. At least a year would be needed to explore it. While it was not a literary masterpiece, von Braun's book was stunning in its technical accuracy. He had calculated the size of each ship and the amount of chemical propellant each craft would need to reach Mars. It would take years to develop the rocket technology needed for the journey, but it was, in theory, possible to do. A decade later, the Soviet Union shocked the world in launching Sputnik, the first artificial satellite, and the space age began in earnest. Two years after Sputnik, the Soviet Union sent the first robotic probe to the moon. Logically, sending robotic probes to the nearby planets would soon follow. But it was a tedious, excruciatingly difficult exercise. Robotic spacecraft were primitive and imperfect. Sometimes the rockets that launched them malfunctioned and blew up. Sometimes the probes didn't make it out of low Earth orbit. One Soviet probe managed to cross interplanetary space and hurtled past the planet Mars, but its broken radio meant that it could not return back any data to Earth. Finally, in 1965, America's Mariner 4 spacecraft sent back 21 grainy black-and-white photos of Mars. There didn't appear to be any artificial canals on its surface. In 1971, the Soviet Union placed the first man-made object on the surface of Mars with their Mars 2 mission. It would have been an impressive accomplishment if not for the fact that the robotic lander had crashed on the surface and been smashed to pieces. 
Yet the Soviet space program pressed on, led by their brilliant chief designer and space czar, Sergei Korolyov. They were now designing and testing the massive N-1 rocket. More than 300 feet tall, it would allow not only for human missions to the moon, but human missions to the nearby planets as well. There were even Soviet plans made to eventually land multiple modules on Mars, to create a Mars train, in which a smaller nuclear reactor would power a manned rover, and multiple modules on wheels would be connected behind it like trailers, storing supplies, housing living quarters, an airlock, and a laboratory for experiments. For one year, the Soviet cosmonauts planned to drive on a planetary road trip, exploring different locations on the surface of Mars before returning to Earth. But the untimely death of the chief designer in 1966 was a devastating setback for the Soviet space program, and their N-1 rocket had many problems. In 1971, America's Mariner 9 robotic spacecraft arrived in orbit around Mars, snapping far more detailed photographs than ever before. These new photos showed a world shrouded in dust clouds. Perhaps it was these storms that once caused the surface features of the planet to change over time when observed in a telescope. When the dust storms finally cleared, a vast and dynamic landscape revealed itself. There was a massive, jagged rift torn in the surface of the planet, an elaborate system of canyons that would come to be called Valles Marineris, or Mariner Valley, named after the robotic spacecraft that discovered it, five times as long as Earth's Grand Canyon in North America. If it were laid out on the planet Earth, Valles Marineris would stretch all the way from the Atlantic Ocean on the East Coast to the Pacific Ocean on the west coast of the continental United States, the longest canyon in the solar system. The entire surface was tinted a reddish-orange color due to iron oxide, not unlike the colors we see when metal rusts and changes color here on Earth. There were other visible features too, massive dormant volcanoes whose highest peaks had even been visible above the planet's dust storms. The largest of these extinct volcanoes would come to be known as Olympus Mons, about the same size as all the land in the country of France, and roughly three times the height of Mount Everest here on Earth, the highest volcano in the solar system. At the end of that same year, the Soviet Union succeeded in safely landing a robotic craft on the surface of Mars. But the craft malfunctioned and ceased to transmit data after just a few seconds. It wasn't until 1976 that a robotic spacecraft successfully landed on the surface of Mars nearly a full decade after NASA's Mariner 4 mission sent back the first detailed pictures of the planet. NASA dubbed these missions Viking, after ancient Scandinavian warriors and seafarers who explored much of Europe, Iceland, Greenland, and even parts of North America. The Viking landers 
sent back images of a world that looked much like the high desert of the western and southwestern United States, filled with rocks, hills, mountains, and sand dunes. But with a carbon dioxide atmosphere only one one-hundredth as thick as the Earth's, the planet retained very little heat from sunlight. Temperatures were often well below zero degrees Fahrenheit, though they could be above zero near the equator during the summertime. The lander's mechanical arms scooped up soil samples and analyzed them. They subjected the soil to something called the life detection experiment. At first, the findings captivated scientists on Earth, showing oxidized organic material near the surface. Was there organic life on Mars after all? Perhaps microscopic and buried in the soil? The results were the same at both of the two landing sites. Many scientists were skeptical, though, suggesting there were merely chemical reactions taking place in the soil rather than biological ones. In other words, the test showed a false positive. One man who worked on the life detection experiment, Gilbert Levin, says to this day that the experiment actually did establish that there was life on Mars and that there is extensive circumstantial evidence to support this conclusion. Ultimately, many scientists deemed the life detection experiment inconclusive. There was no smoking gun that proved the existence of Martian microbes. And yet, photographs from orbit revealed a world that was surprisingly Earth-like, with countless features almost certainly carved by the erosion of liquid water. Dry riverbeds showed meandering channels with a range of tributaries flowing from higher elevations to lower elevations. Even many meteor craters made by ancient impacts seem different from the impact craters on the moon, as if they were made in wet mud rather than dry soil. Mars was very likely warmer in its distant past, with liquid water commonplace across its surface. Rounded, smooth rocks on the surface, too heavy to be picked up and eroded by wind, seem to be the product of water erosion. Even today, astronomers believe that Mars is the most Earth-like planet in the solar system. Mars's polar ice caps were once thought to be made of carbon dioxide, much like its atmosphere. But today, we know that these ice caps are mostly frozen water, just like the ice caps of Earth. Another part of Mars that stands out to astronomers is Terra Serenum, named after the sirens from Greek mythology who lured sailors to their deaths with their hypnotic singing. The region is the site of massive salt deposits, likely left over from an inland sea that has long since dried up. This area is particularly interesting to Charles Kokel, an astrobiologist who searches for life on nearby planets. He points to the fact that on Earth, in dry, salty environments with very little nutrients, deep underground, microbes not only survive, they thrive. Kokel said, quote, if you send me to Terra Serenum with a microscope and a shovel, 
I can tell you in a few hours whether there's life on Mars. We can't yet say with any certainty whether Mars ever harbored alien life, let alone whether some form of life might still exist there today. But our robotic explorers showed us one thing that was certain. Landing on Mars is no easy task. In fact, out of all the spacecraft that humanity has attempted to send to Mars, roughly half of them have suffered a catastrophic failure at some point in the journey. Yet some ambitious pioneers pressed forward. After human beings successfully landed on the moon, von Braun had campaigned hard for a human mission to Mars. Working along his timetable, the first human beings would land on Mars sometime in 1982. Chemical rocket propulsion could be used, but by this point, the United States government had been developing another means of propulsion for many years, nuclear propulsion. A top-secret military effort known as Project Orion had studied using nuclear explosions to propel a vehicle through space, but that project had long since been disbanded. Another program offered a different solution that relied on nuclear technology to serve a similar purpose. It was called NERVA, Nuclear Engine for Rocket Vehicle Application. Chemical rockets like the Saturn V brought large amounts of oxygen with them into outer space to mix with liquid fuel so that their engines can burn that fuel to accelerate. NERVA's form of propulsion did not require any oxygen to be brought along. Instead, they used liquid hydrogen, feeding it into a nuclear reactor, which would convert it into an incredibly hot gas. Then, much like a chemical rocket, the hot gas would spew out of an engine nozzle into outer space, propelling the vehicle forward. The result was a far more efficient means of propulsion than any chemical rocket. In fact, nuclear fission has the potential to create a million times as much energy as conventional chemical fuel. NERVA was a proof-of-concept program, and ground tests of this nuclear engine in the Nevada desert proved highly successful. The engine would function in outer space. The massive Saturn V rocket, which carried Apollo astronauts to the moon multiple times, would be the ideal vehicle to transport NERVA into outer space. The first two stages of the Saturn V would carry the same chemical rocket fuel used in the Apollo missions. Then, when the NERVA rocket engine was safely boosted into outer space, it would ignite its engines to break free of the Earth's orbit and carry astronauts to Mars. In much the same way von Braun had envisioned in his novel, two spacecraft would travel in a convoy together to the Red Planet. Naturally, if the astronauts were going to explore the surface, though, some sort of landing craft had to be developed, much like during the Apollo missions. Unlike the Apollo missions, though, this craft would have to be heavier to protect the larger crew from the intense heat that would build up when they entered the atmosphere of Mars. The larger craft would need plenty of supplies to sustain an expedition on the surface as well, and fuel to return to Earth. Alas, though, a Mars lander for this mission would never be built, 
and NERVA would never fly in outer space. Public support for human space travel had begun to wane after American astronauts walked on the moon. President Richard Nixon slashed NASA's budget, and along with it, all future plans to send astronauts to Mars. NASA's focus shifted to the shuttle, a new space vehicle that could operate only in Earth orbit. And so, for more than a decade, not a single human being ventured beyond Earth orbit. Then, in 1989, President George H.W. Bush made a speech where he announced the Space Exploration Initiative, an extensive and complicated $450 billion plan that would transpire over decades and involve constructing a large space station in Earth orbit, building a permanent base on the Earth's moon, and eventually a human mission to Mars, perhaps launched from the moon. Members of Congress had strong reservations about the enormous price tag. The saga of human spaceflight that had been playing out over decades, both the inspiring successes and the forgotten dreams that never came to pass, had been watched keenly and closely by an engineer named Robert Zubrin. He had been just nine years old and an avid science fiction fan when President Kennedy declared that the United States would land a man on the moon by the end of the decade. As an adolescent, Zubrin watched that declaration become reality. Undeniably brilliant, Zubrin was awarded his first patent at the age of 20. He had worked as a high school science teacher, but later returned to higher education, going on to receive a master's degree in nuclear engineering, a master's degree in aeronautics and astronautics, as well as a Ph.D. in nuclear engineering. When the Space Exploration Initiative was announced, Zubrin worked for an aerospace corporation called Martin Marietta. Years later, a merger would turn this company into Lockheed Martin. Zubrin felt confident that there was a far better way to put humans on the surface of Mars. So he asked his employers if he and a tiny handful of other engineers could work on an alternative proposal. His employers agreed. Some engineers came up with plans for multiple rockets to launch individual pieces of a spacecraft into Earth orbit, chemical rocket fuel, perhaps a lander, and multiple modules would consist of living quarters. The final craft would be assembled in Earth orbit. Fuel alone would be very heavy, and they would need enough to get to Mars and to return to Earth later on. Zubrin found another co-worker named David Baker that shared his philosophy that there was a more sensible, streamlined, and efficient way to put human beings on Mars. So they set to work crafting a proposal. Zubrin said they wanted to explore Mars the same way early settlers had explored the American West, by packing light and living off the land. For a century of human history, chemists knew how a simple chemical experiment made it possible to produce methane-oxygen fuel by combining carbon dioxide and hydrogen. The thin Martian atmosphere was mostly carbon dioxide gas, which would be readily available once a spacecraft landed there. If they merely brought hydrogen along on the journey to aid them in the process, 95% of the fuel needed for the return journey could be made on Mars 
the explorers could refill their spacecraft's fuel tanks from the Martian atmosphere. A separate chemical process could be used to separate oxygen molecules out from carbon dioxide. They could refill their oxygen tanks as well. But even then, the spacecraft would be incredibly heavy. Zubrin had another solution for this. Launch an unmanned space vehicle first to land on Mars to serve as a habitat for future crew. Verify that it was producing fuel for the return journey and creating breathing oxygen, then use a robotic rover to plant a radar transponder at a specifically selected landing site. After that, a crewed vehicle would launch for Mars during conjunction, the precise time when Earth and Mars are closest to each other in their respective orbits around the Sun. The astronauts would make a six-month journey rather than a nine-month journey. Then, for the first time in human history, astronauts would land on the Red Planet, taking advantage of the radar beacon at the landing site. When they arrived, everything they needed to explore the surface for a year would already be there waiting for them. After a year of exploration, at the next conjunction, they could return to Earth in their fully-fueled vehicle that the first launch had placed on the surface. With two rocket launches, humans could land on Mars and return safely to the Earth. Nothing needed to be assembled in outer space. They dubbed it Mars Direct, and it would cost just $55 billion. A large sum, but a tiny fraction when compared with President Bush's $450 billion initiative, Mars Direct could be done within NASA's existing budget. It was 1990 now, and if NASA greenlit the project, human beings would land on Mars by the year 2000. Making a presentation to the National Space Society, Zubrin was met with thunderous applause and a standing ovation and there were many engineers at NASA who gave their enthusiastic endorsement. While Zubrin's presentations at both the Johnson Space Flight Center as well as the Marshall Space Flight Center generated support for his plan, there were also detractors. The Space Exploration Initiative was expensive, but it made use of the space shuttle as well as the space station that was being planned. It satisfied a wide variety of factions at NASA, ensuring them that their specific pet projects would be essential each step of the way on an eventual journey to Mars that spanned decades. Mars Direct didn't need any extra resources to accomplish its goal. As such, some saw the plan as being in direct competition with their own projects, and so NASA administrators struck it down. Perhaps Robert Zubrin himself said it best, quote, Mapping the trajectory of a spacecraft is relatively straightforward, bound only by the laws of physics. Mapping the trajectory of an idea through a political system, on the other hand, can be a dicey business. Some engineers thought that Zubrin's idea deserved another chance, but first, they wanted him to prove that producing rocket fuel on Mars was a viable solution. 
So with a tiny budget from NASA, Zubrin and a small team of aerospace engineers did just that. In three months, without the help of any chemical engineers, the men single-handedly assembled a small propellant plant that made methane-oxygen fuel from only carbon dioxide and hydrogen. In the end, Zubrin felt that the exercise was somewhat superfluous. After all, chemists had been replicating the same experiment for over a century. But the success of the experiment allowed Zubrin to give more detailed briefings to NASA's staff about his plan. Yet for all of Zubrin's persistence and passion, NASA did not forge ahead to make Mars Direct a reality. President Bill Clinton had just been elected, and his administration felt that any human exploration beyond low Earth orbit was simply a waste of money. Though NASA acknowledged that maybe human beings would land on Mars one day, at some undetermined point in the future, at the time, though, the American public and the world at large simply weren't as interested in Mars as they had been in decades past. Zubrin didn't give up his ambitions, though. In the 1990s, he published The Case for Mars, The Plan to Settle the Red Planet and Why We Must. In the meantime, the space shuttle continued its missions in low Earth orbit, and plans were made for an international space station above the Earth. Then suddenly, in 1996, a striking scientific discovery was announced regarding extraterrestrial life. And the eyes of the world once again turned to the Red Planet. The news came in the renowned journal Science. The study featured in the journal had been published by David S. McKay, the man who had taught lunar geology to Apollo astronauts Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin just before they set foot on the moon. The 1996 piece concerned a peculiar meteorite, less than five pounds in weight, discovered in the mountains of Antarctica in the 1980s, a small piece of igneous rock named ALH-84001. The geology of the meteorite was distinctly different from other meteorites and very different from rocks gathered on the moon by the Apollo astronauts. In fact, geologically, the rock's features seemed more similar to those of the planet Mars, much like the soil the Viking probes analyzed. Melted portions of the meteorite had trapped several gases within the rock's structure, like xenon and argon, the same gases that the Viking probes had measured within the atmosphere of Mars. The rock, older than any rock on Earth, likely formed from a Martian volcano four billion years ago, long before life ever arose on the planet Earth. Then, millions of years ago, an impact of an ancient asteroid or comet blasted chunks of the rock off the surface of Mars and sent them hurtling out into deep space. More recently, just a few thousand years ago, the rock entered the Earth's atmosphere and came plummeting to the ground over Antarctica. But these were not the most noteworthy features of the meteorite. Unlikely as it may sound, 
multiple meteorites have been found on Earth that almost certainly came originally from the planet Mars. They were rare, though not unheard of, but this one was different. When examined under an electron microscope, strange structures were discovered, fossilized inside the rock. They looked almost like microscopic bacteria, but they were smaller than any bacteria that had ever been found on the planet Earth. Inside ALH84001, there were tiny minerals. Magnetite crystals of a unique size and chemical composition. At the time, such magnetite crystals were seen inside earth rocks only when the crystals formed by microscopic bacteria. Under intense magnification, the tubular, rope-like structures even looked like microscopic bacteria. And if the meteorite was indeed from Mars, then it formed at a time when liquid water was commonplace on the surface of the planet, a time when life could have thrived. Even more fantastic still, if these structures were fossilized bacteria, then they would have formed long before life on Earth came about. The oldest known living creatures in the solar system and the first known evidence of extraterrestrial life. A formal announcement was made of the discovery by President Clinton. Though, much like in past discoveries, there were many skeptics in the scientific community. Some said that it was possible for such structures to form in the rock without any biological processes taking place. Even in the journal Science, David S. McKay admitted, quote, Inorganic formation is a possibility. Others said the structures were the result of organic activity, but that it took place on Earth after the rock had fallen onto the planet, though it seemed unlikely considering how embedded the structures were in the rock. Sadly, once again, there was no indisputable proof of alien life, but the discovery marked an undeniably important debate in the world of astrobiology. And Earth was once again faced by the question that had been posed by the eccentric astronomer Percival Lowell nearly a century before. Is there life on Mars? Two years later, in 1998, Robert Zubrin, still more determined than ever, founded the Mars Society, a nonprofit organization run largely by volunteers when he speaks about the exploration of Mars in interviews, he is passionate and charismatic, lowering his head like a bull getting ready to charge. There is an intensity in his eyes. He says that landing human beings on Mars in just eight or perhaps ten years is entirely within our grasp, and that it is appalling that we, as a nation, still haven't taken any concrete, decisive action to get there. In one piece of writing, he quoted the famous military leader, Napoleon Bonaparte. Bonaparte once spoke of his simple philosophy for war with Austria, saying, If you want to take Vienna, take Vienna. If we want to land on Mars, perhaps it's time to make a commitment to doing it. Zubrin says, Technologically, we are actually closer to landing human beings on Mars today than in the early 1960s when President Kennedy 
proposed sending astronauts to the moon. During the summer of 2001, Zubrin was hosting a fundraising dinner for the organization. At $500 a plate, they sent out invitations to a number of members and high-profile donors. It was at this time something strange caught their attention. A very generous donation of $5,000 from someone whose name wasn't on the guest list and had received no invitation. The name itself seemed almost alien, and it was a name that no one in the aerospace or astronomy community had ever heard of. Elon Musk. And he would prove to be an important figure in humanity's quest to set foot on the Red Planet. We hope you'll join us this Friday for the After Talk, where we'll be welcoming a guest who will be sharing her research on the planet Mars.